Hi everyone, welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Rebecca Price, a researcher and assistant professor at the Faculty of Industrial Design Engineering at Delft University of Technology. In today's episode, Rebecca speaks to her passions and drives as a designer, innovative thinker and teacher. We are curious to hear her thoughts on friction and ways to approach it, on challenges that multidisciplinary settings may bring and means that allow her to keep up to her expectations. How has her sports background contributed to her resilience? In the second part of our talk, Rebecca shares what inspired her to carry out the project 100 Days, graduating during COVID-19. Hear her speak on ways to facilitate students in challenging times, on mutual awareness, ways of being a mentor of value, and the reasons she finds teaching so important. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Dr. Rebecca Price, a professor at uh, TU Delft. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Karina. Thanks for having me. Now, Rebecca, um, before we go navigating your wonderful background and experience, I, I would love to um, start by asking you to tell me and our listeners a little bit about your path. Like, how did you come to do what you do? Uh, and what exactly is it that you do? Well, I'm a assistant professor of uh, something called transition design here at uh, Delft University of Technology. I've been in the position for the last three or four years. Before that, I was a postdoc here in Delft as well. I have a background in industrial design, the design of products and services, um, with an emphasis on making those. Um, and over the last few years, I've really been shifting from an emphasis on, on um, making products and services to trying to kind of frame design as much more of a strategic activity um, in which organizations can de determine and be more deliberate about what they'd like to become. And this is kind of a bit of a precursor to, to the more transition systemic imperative that I now take up. I guess uh, I've always been quite a sort of creative soul. I didn't really have much choice in the matter because my parents are both architects. So from a very early age, I was really sort of indoctrined into uh, thinking about spaces and interactions and atmosphere and how light travels through buildings and, you know, being on building sites that mum and dad were developing and, and seeing dad also draft um, buildings and seeing his plans. I was always sort of really very close to thinking about the world as something that could be planned and designed for the better. And somehow my, my studies took me more towards industrial design than architecture in the end, which I'm grateful for. Mm -hmm. And and where exactly was it in the world that you um, that you grew up and you experienced this um, now these activities? 
Well, I think some of your audience will recognize my accent, perhaps. I'm, I'm Australian, so I was born and raised in Brisbane in Australia, and uh, I was trained at Queensland University of Technology. That's where I received my training as an industrial designer with an honours. I started a master of research that actually became a PhD on the topic of design-led innovation, so really how design could be used in corporate environments to complement but sometimes disrupt the traditional business development functions that are very much around sort of um, sort of looking at the viability of something and then sort of determining from a reverse point of view how you might um, then sort of please your customers. So it was very much like numbers first and then later on figure out what people really need, whereas we know that design really starts with, with, those, with the human condition. Mm. Yeah, and, and I imagine that in, in the kind of work that you do and the way your eye gets drawn towards system thinking, um, there's there's also a lot of like knowledge translation or uh, that you are uh, either part of or, or, or kind of steering yourself between various ways of looking at the world or various disciplines of studying the world. Um, have you have you experienced that in your work? Um, and and if so, you know, tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, it's really it's it could be a challenging question, but um, naturally I prepared. <laughs> but I I think. A current project that I'm just starting called iTree uh, 2.0. This is a major consortium led here by Delft, by the architecture faculty and the faculty of industrial design engineering, which is a great thing in itself that the two faculties are uh, collaborating. It's a major grant to um, quantify the contribution of trees to the livability of our cities. So that is um, over their lifespan, how much oxygen are they generating? How are they contributing to soil quality? How are they um, contributing to biodiversity? How are they con contributing to noise reduction? And the list goes on, you know, of the great things that trees do in cities. Um, and of course, don't forget how are they contributing to heat reduction during heat waves, which are, you know, really extreme events. So we have, you know, 27 different consortium members and uh, from really the, the hyper-technical into how you quantify these things. So the more social, like policy makers, um, to citizens, to small businesses, to ag the agri-sector. And the thing that really puzzled me was what kind of language or framing of this challenge could we adopt that would bring these stakeholders together in a way that really united us, you know, um, beyond our ambition to to make cities more livable. And so I was sort of playing with the proposition, you know, how would you treat tree, trees if you, if you classified them as essential workers? Because that's what they do, isn't it? They, they give us oxygen. They protect us from the extreme environments that can happen. Um, they keep our cities livable. So they're really essential workers. And this kind of language really just tracked on mm. with all of the different consortium members who said, okay, I can, I understand that, you know, if trees were essential workers, we would know what each tree, what its identity was, what its performance was. We'd know how to support it in certain situations. It would have benefits, you know, it would have healthcare, you know, these kind of things. So <clears throat> that kind of opened up a whole, you know, sort of, opportunity space working mm. with all of these different stakeholders whom I don't necessarily know how to talk to on a technical level but I but because we can adopt this shared language um, and this 
sort of shared ambition, we can make um, really, we can have really productive uh, um, sessions with them. I guess this is a nice reflection for me is, you know, in this system space, the language is so important to bring people together. Um, you somehow have to transcend so much variety. And this yeah. is one example. Yeah, and, and I can imagine that, you know, um, what exactly is it that transcends it? Is it, is it the wording? Is, is it the identifier and the belief that, that that item or that tree at that sense, this is what it represents also for me on a more fundamental level? So you're kind of like getting people to look at the thing from from a from a from a ground perspective that is the same, right? And it's um, I, I find that not that that easy in this knowledge space. Like, how do you reach that kind of deeper level where you're looking at it from the same perspective but through the filter of your own knowledge? Yeah, it's you could kind of stray into cybernetics, and I I dare not do that because <laughs> I'm, I'm really um, I'm really a designer, so I like to make things, and I'm. Uh, I wouldn't classify myself as a, as a cybernetic expert, definitely not. But the, the language that you do adopt has a really sort of strong, symbolic um, sort of set of uh, associations that people might have. So essential workers, I defy you to, to, to tell me or show me somebody that doesn't understand what an essential worker is in a pandemic. So you get these strong connotations of, of this relentlessness, of this essential quality of um, sort of like um, th that they are that they are needed even when um, uh, even when we can't be there for them. You know, like it's yeah. I, I think that those qualities really stimulate people's imagination yeah. in a way where they understand how their knowledge and how their discipline contributes to something which um, which cannot be solved by one discipline alone. Yeah. I, I wonder if, if, if within that project you have anybody that contested the implications of that identity space of the essential worker. And maybe just to give you an example to maybe make my question clearer, I lived in New Zealand for two years and I used to work with the Maori and Pacifica communities on projects quite often. And one of the things that struck me um, was that the way they looked at the tree because there were there also there are a lot of projects around tree like like they look at, at trees and nature uh, not from a position of service not from a position of you know nature is at service to the human species but the opposite like we are at service to to nature uh, therefore there's the relationship of power there is almost inversed based on the way that culture defines that relationship so just just a just a, a check with you like did you have in that project a group or somebody that kind of contested this 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 uh, implication of an essential worker associated with trees or, or not you had like not yet i mean um i'm familiar with maori culture as an australian we always sort of look across the tasman sea and just sort of aspire to new zealand's um just really cultural richness and and the the sort of deep appreciation they have for indigenous culture I would say not so far. Nobody from the consortium has contested it yet. But you know what? We're kind of like in quite an insular Western scientific um, sort of paradigm here. So it, 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 this language and the symbols, they seem to cut well for now. But of course, it could be that you adopt more of the indigenous 
uh, more of a decolonized and an ecological perspective. Um, and, and I think we'll sort of arrive at that naturally through the project. We'll kind of take that essential worker terminology and we might arrive back at a, a more fitting biological um discussion and one that really honors the fact that no way we should be serving the trees no they're not serving us we, we are um, occupying their land so yeah uh, we are um, guardians right like in the maori culture kaichi akitanga like you, you you are at a subservience to nature but uh, i i think that's what makes it you know as, a, as an anthropologist looking into design and looking into interventions and effects that that somehow and multidisciplinarity too is that you're constantly searching for that um, foundation out of which language emerges um, and and what how do you sit in the spaces of almost uh, fundamental contradictions when it anchored in your values but um, I think that if you have a very strong group that is joined by a good purpose, then this kind of friction and tensions, as you said, they get uncovered uh, throughout the design, maybe iterative process. Um, now, and, and hopefully it would take the group to a more inclusive and better result. I certainly hope so. And, and I see friction and tension in the design process as productive, by the way. It's not necessarily something to be avoided. It's, it's a good thing. It shows that we're uncovering interesting values and um, points of view that if somehow result in a, in a solution that integrates those those different needs that we, that we could arrive at something really profound. Yeah. Now, two more questions on this topic. I think one of them, because um, you're talking now about friction and tension, and I I I I remember from from my own kind of uh, uh, working as a as an applied anthropologist with designers in companies that the way we kind of approach friction was not always the way that it's approached by others, you know, like friction is not always seen as this kind of enabler for a, for a better solution. Um, I, I wonder how, how do you, how do you work with others that are not so comfortable uh, uh, sitting in spaces of friction as, as positive spaces that like, are there any tips that you might give maybe people from our audience that uh, have experienced the same struggles as I have? Well, I think it's, there's some sort of intellectual activity. Like, why is that friction happening? Why is it that I'm getting a negative system response here? Whether it is that somebody thinks that the work I'm doing is crazy or it's outrageous or it's unnecessary, I'd be trying to determine why they're adopting that point of view and what what are the influences on them um, maybe I don't see. So in that way, I'm kind of being a bit more systemic, if you like, with how I view what's happening. The next thing is that, you know, if you're really facing huge resistance to change from a faction, you need to try and sidestep them or find advocates that, that are in a position, let's say hierarchically, where they're, that they're able to sort of, from a top-down point of view, say to that faction, no, this is the direction we're going in. So you could go above a middle manager to the manager or the CEO and get top-down approval and then sort of <laughs> force that part of the organization to um, to change or overcome their resistance or to be in in it you know in a minimal sense tolerant to what you're doing. I think tension in design can be sort of played with through um, interesting methods um, uh, like for example, you know, a day in the life of where you kind of stumble across an event that's 
really unintended that has dire consequences um, and that that, in, that that was a consequence of somebody else's poor design, you know, so you're even critiquing your own discipline. Um, but I would start with the intellectual exercise to ask yourself why that negative feedback is coming. If somebody says, no, I, I find this distasteful, I think you're outrageous, and you know you're doing something that's good and just, then you have to ask yourself and step back and say, why is it that that, is, that, that feedback is happening? That's a system performance um, rather than something that I should take really personally. Yeah, I think that's great feedback. And I wonder, just a short follow-up on that, how do you take, what helps you take that position when you are in a, in a position of lack of power in the group? Like I'm thinking here, you know, maybe uh, designers or researchers that are at the beginning of their career or that they don't have a, a lot of like power capital in the group to be able to take that position, or maybe they don't feel safe enough to do so. What would you advise them to do? I mean, if you don't feel safe, then you have a you have probably some other problems that you need to resolve. If you don't feel confident, maybe it's about developing some mentoring, so changing the dynamic of, of you to the group. So it could be that you ask for some mentoring from a person within that group who's in a senior position and that you establish a different relationship with them rather than you as a junior, them as a senior. It could be more like, can you help me grow to, to become a better team player, to become a better contributor and in the end a leader. So I would say sort of be a bit more <laughs> almost recursive to your colleagues, you know, step back from them and then step towards them again. And um, Of course, it's always difficult when you're a junior, you know, no, you don't have a lot of capital. So observing really carefully what, again, are pe the drivers behind people's behaviour, what are they valuing, being really observant to that and picking up on those social cues I think that is absolutely underestimated and that's where often you see sort of introverts take take really good steps in becoming very valued in teams. If you're feeling unsafe, then then probably you have some other problems that you need to attend to. Yeah, that's wonderful feedback. Thank you, Rebecca. And um, maybe one last question in this in this kind of universe. Um, what are some of the challenges that you have experienced yourself in this kind of space of of knowledge translation, multidisciplinarity? Um, yeah, share share some of them and how how did you work with them yourself? I think one ever present challenge is just how slow things can change when you know that they're urgent. So on this climate type. You know, all of the problems, uh, sort of sub-problems related to climate change, you know there needs to be ch change and you know it's urgent, but it's so slow. Um, that is personally frustrating. And I always try to sort of say to myself, well, set a good example first and foremost. Change your own behaviours before you ask others to change around you, and that's something that I've really tried to live by. For example, I stopped eating meat and uh, two years ago and, and and there were all sorts of other behavior changes that I I just decided to do because it it takes behavior change from all all the people across you know the world to, to do these sort of things. So starting with yourself and, and trying to hold yourself to high standards and expectations is is how I've dealt with that frustration. 
I guess other challenges, um, you know, there's the challenge of, of productivity versus really deep learning and, and deep exploration. Of course, that's a, a challenge that we all face is, is wanting to know why and how things work, being simultaneously asked to fix problems uh, and not fix the root cause of those problems. That can also be a frustration or a challenge. And I've certainly sort of seen that in, uh, in my work over the years. Thankfully, in academia, you know, you get some time, some space to really think and step back from phenomena and be asking those questions like, why is this happening? And that's why, this is one of the reasons why I do really enjoy my job, is that I do have that time and space. So, I wonder if this is a good bridge towards the, the next category. Like, how, uh, how do you... How do you see your space of value? How do you see um, the way you contribute to, to the world and to the ecosystem? Yeah, there's a deep question. I think we got very deep very quickly. Well, I think my contribution comes in a way from me being authentic, you know, as to who I am, not trying to be somebody that that the world tells me I should be or, or somebody that um, this particular institution rewards me for being. So somehow being authentic to myself. So I'm I'm really hold myself to high quality expectations. So whatever I do, it has to be done well, um, and that can be a blessing and a curse. But so whether that's teaching students, mentoring students, I I make time and I spend time and I sit with them, you know, side by side, and we go through the work together. And that that is a really intense activity that I allow myself time for. And I also understand that that can be very draining. So on the other side of teaching, I will not plan, you know, really rigorous work, I'll do more administrative duties. So I can really drain myself and work with my students. <clears throat> and it's it's really, you know, this calling to yourself to say, I'm going to hold myself to the highest quality expectations that I can. The things that I do cannot be done poorly or there's no there's no room for mediocrity here. I'm going to do things as best as I can. And in order to do that, you're going to have to improve as well. So I get this, this background really comes from, um, it, you know, prior to my studies being a, an elite footballer. So I was really an elite sport. And there you learn that commitment, that dedication to quality, to performance and and being committed to the team. And th these things have translated very naturally into my working life. And of course, for me to have that quality, then you need the rest on the other side of that. And that's something you also learn from sport is you need to rest. Otherwise you cannot build yourself back up, can't build, um, you actually can't build muscle if you don't rest. So, uh, so that same principle applies, resting well so that you're fresh and you can do your job well. And, you know, I've never worked an all-nighter in my life and I've done a PhD and I'm very proud of it and I will not be doing one. Yeah, I, I, I definitely uh, share um, uh, so much of, of the story that you shared. I come from a very competitive uh, culture myself. I grew up in Eastern Europe and also with the same kind of dedication to service and be the best that you can of yourself to the world and find a lot of value um, in that. But I have yet to master the balance of self-support self, self -support versus service. 
um, in, in the way you are explaining it for yourself. So what, what has made it so for you that it, that you've managed to achieve that, that balance between, you know, how much you give yourself or allow others to give you versus how much you give the world and in that kind of happy medium, find your sweet spot? What has helped you in, in, in that balancing act? I think it's having really clear things that I enjoy outside of work. And, you know, for me, it's as simple as walking the dog or playing sport. Uh, I've, throughout the pandemic, I've been running a lot. I've run um, at least my watch tells me, you know, close to six or 700 kilometers since March last year, 2020. Yeah. So I've been running a lot, which from a physiological perspective, really helps you to be comfortable, reduces stress, it improves your diet, it improves how you sleep, it actually, exercise can help you with clarity of thought. So I, I really am very kind of holistic and deliberate to make sure that I give myself um, sort of the nutrients, if you like, yeah. to be able to work well. Uh, I also stopped drinking so you know alcohol during the pandemic because i knew that it was kind of it it could get dire you know if if you for example drank too much um but you weren't in really nice social contexts where drinking is kind of contributes to the atmosphere so i i really made a lot of conscious decisions that would protect myself potentially from from the harm that i think the pandemic has caused people from a more social point of view. Yeah, that's wonderful. And that, I thought that is a good bridge to my first section where I, I'm kind of moving away from your personal story. <laughs> um, and, and I want to make the bridge towards your wonderful teaching experience with students and, and the project that actually drew me to write to you, which was the 100 days graduating during COVID, which which it was uh, now when I started reading about it, I I found it extremely wonderful that somebody does that in the middle of COVID, at the beginning of COVID, uh, on such an important topic. So would you mind sharing a little bit with our listeners about the project? And um, and maybe we can spend the last uh, minutes of our conversation diving into the topic of resilience and um, support. Absolutely. So when the pandemic struck, we as a university we kind of went into teaching online overnight. So it was really a massive disruption. Um, I do recall it being hugely stressful. And I can imagine that that's a shared experience for many people, no matter what industry you're in, when your whole way of life is disrupted. So I was, I was really kind of alarmed. You know, a couple of weeks in, I actually stopped working on the research that I was doing into more methodology, systemic design. I started to think, okay, I know that my students are really struggling. I can see them and I can hear them struggling in their projects. And it cannot just be them. It, it has to be more general than that. So I developed a survey along with my colleagues to look at how graduation students who are doing their solo thesis in particular at the end of their master's were, um, we had two questions. So what motivates you? Um, in your studies at this time and what's the greatest challenge mm -hmm. to that motivation? So it was really short, two questions, bang, bang, um, to really respect their time and just kind of get a punchy data, data collection that could tell us what kind of challenges our students are experiencing and what was helping them to sort of power through those. 
what was helping them to stay on track in terms of motivation. We know from motivation theory, you know, a self-deterministic theory that that people who are more motivated will actually learn more, so they'll have deeper deeper level learning and they'll have a higher level of well-being um, if they're motivated to learn. And so <clears throat> it was really it was really sort of just a really opportunistic but also necessary deep dive into the experiences of our students. And we really found that in addition to the obvious um, challenges to them being sort of confined to a very small room, you know, we're talking like a four by two meter square student living with poor internet and not a lot of light and um, sharing a bathroom with 100 other people, 50 other people, you know, that they were actually really challenged by the design process and the uncertainty in the design process. And that this really pushed them over the edge into sort of a vulnerable space where they didn't really feel confident to make judgments in their own projects. They were doing projects and they felt like they shouldn't be doing those projects that they weren't equipped. Now, I can tell you that never happens mm. um, before. That, that has never happened to me where I've seen that before the pandemic and, and now since we're back to face-to-face learning. I've not seen students question their expertise like that mm. ever. So uh, what we did was we started to explore how and why the design process as, as something where you grapple uncertainty, you move from uncertainty through to heuristics and then you develop solutions. Why theoretically that's challenging and in the context of higher education, what that means for students, that students can either be overwhelmed by uncertainty or they can actually be sort of empowered by it. And so we developed a set of um, well-being sessions to support master students in, in particular to help them cope with that uncertainty. It's just as really simple as, as setting up um, virtual sort of networking events between students um, facilitated by researchers and teachers who could just spend time answering questions, connecting people, connecting the dots, like would like that would normally yeah. happen, you know, in a university yeah. campus, yeah. you know. So we just created a virtual campus basically. Um, but tell me a little bit, Rebecca, about how did you manage to bring that to life? Because what I found incredibly fascinating in the article that you've that you've wrote is it's it's you no know, like the insights that you came to and the speed to which you designed the survey, but how you managed to set up together with a group of people to activate the academic space to offer that um, to offer that solution. Like what what helped you in in just moving so fast from insight to action in that space? Having good advocacy from the directors of education here in our particular faculty, and that came from us initially showing them the work, writing the LinkedIn article, getting sort of a groundswell of people going, yeah, this is important, we see this too, and then elevating it to them through, you know, a set of uh, meetings. And we ended up advising not just the, the faculty's um, educational directors, but the the educational directors of the entire university, so the top of each faculty of the university, we ended up advising to that particular board on how to support students. And we continue to roll out this emphasis on student wellbeing during solo projects, graduations, even now after the pandemic, and we're, we're moving it across different faculties now. So it just started small and it just started for the right reasons. And, um, the momentum grew, but then we did something with that. We were very deliberate with that. 
it's not necessarily that we began knowing that this would happen. It's more like we could we did it because we we were worried and we were concerned and we wanted to help, but then we we went through the right channels to grow it. Yeah. And what has been the what have you seen was the response of the students um, in those early days and now to this initiative and and what are some of the things that surprised you if any in their response? I think in the early days there were sort of as you would expect when something affects a, an entire population you get the variants that you would expect. So you have people really not coping, um, really in a state of depression, their anxiety is triggered. Uh, and it's pretty dire, you know, they're on the edge. They might even have mental health concerns that are underlying and that those have been aggravated. And so you have your full sort of spans of people that are that are really struggling to all the ones that are sort of hyper resilient um, that have really identified identified what they want from this design education, why they need an education in design from a university what they want to do in their career and what kind of good they want to do in the world and why this is important. And even though there's a pandemic, you can see beyond the pandemic. So just, I think I was surprised at the, the spectrum of responses in the survey, but that I was also encouraged by the number of students that displayed really strong routines, daily routines to, as I said before, sort of protect their well-being, sort of provide nutrients to themselves so that they could work, not just food, but really sort of a much more holistic understanding of their health and their health in relation to their learning. Mm. So that was surprising and delightful and um, and really inspiring, actually, really inspiring. Yeah. And, and and for yourself, you know, like I can imagine that you also had to adjust quite quickly to this, or maybe not, to this hybrid way of, of teaching and engaging and interacting as from your identity as a as a teacher. Do you have some takeaways to share from for yourself as a as a as a teacher from those uh, these last two two years? Well, I notice now that I have students back in the classroom and then I can sit with them, I really do just sit with them and I ask them questions, you know, like, how, why are you here today? Like, what brought you to these studies? And, and you know, what, let your imagination run wild. What would, what would be the projects you'd love to work on in the future? And where do you see yourself having great impact? And I just, I just feel myself sort of just relaxing alongside students and just really lowering that hierarchy of teacher student that instructional hierarchy of just feel that lowering down and just listening to them so in that way i've i've just kind of reevaluated the role of the teacher not just to be clearly an instructor but somebody that can almost be like a confidant you know that you can talk to um about really these these fundamental drivers that are that, that are driving you um and that's been quite nice to to sit with students and just really talk with them of course you can't do it forever you have to really get on with things and and you can only do it after you've delivered the content you know you, you need to give them that knowledge up front you can't start your conversation like that um because the students will be waiting for you you know to, to, yeah. to start you know to start teaching so it's just been i think my takeaway is is to remember that this is that teaching is a really, it's really a social activity in a way. 
Yeah, and and is that something that that you felt that the the last two years reinforced for you to take you to that insight, or was that something that you've done also before, but now it just gains more salience for you? It's it's always been something that I've thought of. You know, when I started mm-hmm. teaching, I, I always looked at my students and I forced myself to imagine, you know, that there's somebody's son or somebody's daughter, somebody's sister or brother somebody's mother or father, like they, they, and, and to imagine my own family and say, okay, I need to do the best job I can do that because that is what I would want for my family. So I'm going to give it everything I've got for this individual. Uh, so that, that's, it's something that's sort of amplified during yeah. the pandemic because you know that everybody has a story that they bring and that they have, they have, you know, little traces in their story of, of setbacks yeah. and adversities they've, they've faced that have really shaped them. And, and Rebecca, do you make your intention explicit or is that more implicitly carried to how you act as a teacher? I would say it's more implicit and I'm not really overbearing. So, you know, I, I will really focus on delivering the content first and foremost and um, make sure the course is structured and logistically sound. And then, you know, you start to soften that boundary and just sit with people a bit more when you've got a bit of, you know, sort of spare time. So it's if you were to do that up front without giving the content, the knowledge, that, that primary knowledge transfer, then I think you would frustrate your students because they'd be waiting for you, as I said, mm-hmm. to get yeah. on with it, <laughs> to get on with yeah. teaching. Yeah, but like your your kind of vision on what the teacher should be or, or personal vision, no? And this type of entering the space of deep empathy and guidance. Um, is that something that you discuss maybe with your students at some point or just, just your kind of your personal vision or is not something that you yeah. focus I on? I, I don't tend to discuss it with the students. Yeah. I think in the end, I'm showing them a way of yeah. connecting to a potential end user or a potential customer or a potential sort of actor within a system. I'm just showing them some interpersonal skills, you know, that can take, that can bring them closer to somebody, um, but still respect, you know, kind of uh, their space and what they're there to do. And in in design, we know that that's, of course, incredibly important. So that you can really design for somebody's human condition, whether it be a product or service or, whether it be a doorstop, you know, that you understand what they need it for and, and how they're going to use it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm asking you this question because of the, the, the two separate people that have kind of guided me towards you, um, one of the both students, but 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 some at a, at a, at a, at a PhD level and, and the other one more of a master, I think. They both spoke to the type of mentor that you were to their processes uh, and kind of reflected more on your personal attributes that you just told me as a, as a kind of what impacted them uh, and less more the instructional part. So they, they spoke to this kind of deep spaces of vulnerability and service that you create that make them be themselves with you, vulnerable, open, and, you know, um, kind of, yeah, describe this these characteristics that you're just talking right now as the value that they got out of the uh, mentorship relationship. So that is a Starting point to my question, I, I, I wanted to ask you, Rebecca, um, do you have people that you look up to in that way? And, and, and what are, or, you know, like what, what type of qualities or attributes do you yourself search for in a mentor or a teacher for you? It's a nice question. I, if, 
at, at least in a mental capacity, you know, because my parents share the same sort of disciplinary area of design, albeit architecture, I've always looked up to them, not just, you know, in a parental way, but also to have really interesting conversations about designing and mm-hmm. what it feels like and what it um, what it can produce and how it can empower people uh, and what's wrong with it <laughs> is, you know, is also interesting to talk with them about. So for me, I've really, I've really been so lucky in that respect to have parents like that in a more professional capacity. I would say I'm, I'm not necessarily focused on one particular person as a mentor, but rather to see the good attributes that all different sorts of people have around me, whether they're above me in a hierarchy or maybe alongside me or even below me, maybe they just started their job yesterday and, you know, that I can see some attributes where I go, wow, I really, I really appreciate that in that person. So are they particularly good at managing things or are they really good at doing sort of visionary work? Mm -hmm. Um, Are they perhaps really good at getting people to be on time? You know, like, so I, (laughs) it's not that I'm mentored particularly by one person, but that I just, I float around and I, I try to get to know people and what, what they bring to the table as well. Yeah. And, and do you have particular figures of left teachers that you look up to for your own personal development, um, maybe outside of the professional side? I think, again, I can go back to that sporting, hmm. you know, past that I have and where you have coaches that are just so good at at engaging you and, and getting the best out of you. Hmm. And I certainly had a couple of coaches in the past um, that – found a way to connect with each individual player to bring out the best in them and then get them to work together. Mm. I think that just requires so much patience, but so much sort of uh, almost like emotional intelligence to really understand what makes that person click, what really interests them, uh, how would you communicate with them in to keep them comfortable. You know, you can't be really overt with them. Maybe you have to be more softly spoken and gentle or maybe they're really crazy characters and you just got to go and go to the bar and laugh with them you know over an hour so I think it's just again that variation of 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 kind of types of people and and the uniqueness of people and just understanding that to really understand to to really deal with that you just have to be patient and take time um, to to work with people you can't just pick it up like that off people it's just not going to happen so yeah I, I think I think it's very valuable to to have somebody around you that that offers that depth of service and insight you know like I I I, um, I think the people that are around you that, that that sit in front of that intense lens to try to sense to feel to see to guide they're quite lucky and I I, I hope there are others that do that back for you because it's it's a, it's a wonderful thing to offer to be able to offer the world and um, to sit with people so intensely in in their space of development. So, mm-hmm. in the end, I think what drives me is the fact that we've got some pretty tough goals to meet. You know, yeah. 20, 2030 sustainable goals, uh, 2040 2050 carbon neutral goals, and the t- and the people that we teach today will be at the pinnacle of their careers around 2040 2050 they will be the ones who do it not yeah. not generation so 
we literally cannot fail in terms of the quality of education that we deliver. It, there's not a, no. there's no other choice, you know. So we have to develop the best designers that we have ever developed. I don't know if we are, but we have to try. So now that is a that is a wonderful sentiment, Rebecca, to care for the next generation and your responsibility in shaping the minds and hearts of the next generation. Um, any 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 last words of you know wisdom or advice that you might offer those of our in our audience that are in the same how do you say in the same game with you in in shaping the hearts and minds of the next generation? Well, not so much. I think there's been plenty of sort of practical reflection <laughs> throughout this yeah. hour, which has gone very fast. Can I say um, that's always a good indication. I would say, you know, what I'm working on now is this thing called designer resilience. So it's really about um, paying more attention to the cognitive flexibility that's required to solve problems, you know, to step back and to be able to iterate it without fixating on any possible solution, really being able to reframe negative feedback like I spoke about before, to be able to learn from negative events and, and grow from them. Cognitive flexibility is incredibly important in design because it's what stimulates our ability to adopt multiple points of view and to also be able to say to ourselves, well, this is my early concept, but actually, you know, I can see that that based on all of this information that, that that's, that's thoroughly, you know, wrong, not necessarily wrong, but it needs to change and I need to change. So I'm working on this idea of cognitive uh, of designer resilience, which at the heart of it lies cognitive flexibility, which is shared both by how um, uh, clinical psychologists would, would teach people to deal with setbacks, but also how we teach designers to to reframe uh, in their process so that they can learn. So there's a really deep theoretical connection between the two, and I'm developing that here in the Netherlands at this faculty. I've recently received a grant from the Ministry of um I think it's education, culture, and science to develop this. So I'm really hoping that it has good general value to any design school in the world. But I think there's something in it that's a bit more general, even more to like problem solving, resilient problem solving. And I, you know, it remains to be seen, but it's an exciting next step for me. And I've got some work that I'm publishing and that I'll make sure that I can make available to your audience Oh, nice. Thank you. Thank you for that. It, it reminds me of a, of a similar project I'm working on in my other life around resilient systems and how do you deal with change. And two of the um, topics that we are diving now deeper into is how do you nurture more neutral neutrality in, in thinking and more compassion so, so that you kind of are able to almost de-identify yourself from your own positionality and, and be able to hold space and move fast and, and hold compassion for topics that um, are might be at the polar opposite of what you might think. But mm. like nurturing compassion and neutrality as a mindset is um, something that um, is busy me and, and it resonated a lot with the project that you mentioned. Yeah, so that's just one. There's nice. also the iTree project running in, in parallel, which is more about right. the resilience of, of of our cities. So this is mm. this project is more about the resilience of our designers. So they sit in parallel and quite interesting um, sort of intersections along the way, which I'm really excited to learn more about. But you know, it's um it's enough for today. Yeah, I think so. I'm at the end of my work day today, so I'm ready to go. No. 
<laughs> Rebecca, it was such a pleasure talking to you and I hope um, it was the same for our listeners and thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.